And welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer. As always, it's an honor to be speaking with you. Thank you for coming along on this ride. We're going to start today's show by discussing an issue that bedevils many family travelers. The price of Airbnbs and other types of rentals has gone way, way up. And so a lot of family travelers are traveling the old-fashioned way, trying to get connecting rooms in hotels. But that can be tricky. That's why we wrote about this on Fromers.com, and I have the author with me now. Her name is Juliana Shalcross. Hey, Juliana. Thank you so much for appearing. Thank you so much for having me. So I think a lot of people have trouble finding connecting rooms in hotels because there aren't just, there aren't that many of them, right? Yeah. I mean, I think it's really a big problem for families that have three or more children or families that have older children, like teenagers, just at that age, nobody wants to share a room anyway. So they definitely don't want to share a room on vacation. Um, But yeah, historically hotels haven't they don't typically offer a lot of connecting rooms. It's usually a very small percentage of the total room count that have connecting rooms. You say in the article that it's only about 10%, which surprised me because I feel like whenever I check into a hotel alone, I get a connecting room and I (laughs) I dread that because there's often more noise uh, that can be shared between the two rooms if there's a door between your, your room and another, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, maybe you're staying in some of the newer properties because <laughs> newer hotels have started to account for family and group travel, and they have been making more um, connecting rooms, or as they call it, uh, adjoining rooms. And so newer hotels tend to be a little bit more of a better option for families, whereas older hotels, historic hotels, just don't have that many connecting room options. Oh, that's good advice. So that's if you're looking for this type of of room, that's where you should look. You also have to use the right terminology so the hotel will understand what you're asking for. So what are the right terms to use if you need these types of rooms? So um, in the hotel industry lingo, adjoining rooms are what we would call connecting room. Um, so these mean that, you know, there's two rooms and there's one door that opens in between them and you can go freely between these two rooms. Um, if they say they can't give you adjoining rooms, but they give you adjacent rooms, that is probably going to be next to each other or even across the hall from each other, but you won't have huh. a shared door. So you do have to be very specific when you request adjoining room, say adjoining or connecting and not adjacent. And do you have to call the hotel directly or can you find these types of rooms on such third-party sites as, I don't know, Priceline, Expedia, Orbitz, Travelocity? Um, Online, it is typically harder. Um, One great thing about Hilton Hotels, whether you're a fan or not of Hilton, is that they did start to offer a connecting rooms option on their websites. 
So if you're looking to stay at a hotel um, and you know exactly which Hilton hotel it is, and you, um, you can search on that hotel's website for connecting rooms if the hotel has connecting rooms. Um, so Hilton sure. has made it very easy to book connecting rooms on their website, but most other hotels, it does require a phone call to request those uh, adjoining rooms. And, you know, it's still not always guaranteed, but hmm. typically you Is make there- the reservation. Sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, typically, you make the reservation, and if you ask for a joining and they say you have it, they have it, then then you should get it. You do make the point in the article that there are there is a third way at hotels, right? There are larger rooms uh, that might be able to accommodate a family, a large family at hotels, right? Yes. I mean, the suite options at hotels are always great to consider. Typically, they do tend to be about the price of two rooms. Sometimes they can be a little bit less. I think the only concern with the suite is that usually you could have one bedroom and a pull-out sofa bed, so that can fit four people. But sometimes you run up against the maximum occupancy laws, which tend to be four people only. So if you have a family of five or more, a suite may not exactly work for everybody in your family and the hotel wouldn't allow you to have more than four people. But then things get a little trickier too because if you have, you know, two parents and two children and then a baby, then that can work because the baby can sleep in a crib and doesn't take up much space and somehow manages to be safe within the occupancy rules. But I find because I have three children that a suite just doesn't tend to be big enough. And there's not a lot of, there's not enough beds. Um, Typically we do a bedroom and a sofa bed and we still need to request a roll away. And then that just becomes really tight as far as space. (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. No, it's an issue. Well, is there anything I haven't asked you uh, that, that you think is good advice for families in your predicament? I mean, I think that you know, nobody really wants to pay for two hotel rooms. So I think the smartest thing to do is look at those extended stay brands like a residence in or a courtyard by Marriott or um, Hampton Inn. Just, you know, they may not be the coolest hotels in the city or destination that you want to go to, but they do have the space that you need. And sometimes they often have little kitchenettes. And I find traveling with a family or even a group of friends, I'd rather have that space and the amenities than try to jam everybody into one hotel room or pay double our budget just to get two hotel rooms. So I think if you can sacrifice maybe some of the cool factor, (laughs) um, (laughs) you will definitely make up for it in space. Yeah, absolutely. Well, great advice. Thank you so much for appearing on the Frommer Travel Show. Thank you so much for having me. Our next guest is at the forefront of a new type of travel. His name is Neil Markey, and he is the CEO of Beckley Retreats, which does psychedelic retreats. Welcome to the Frommer Travel Show, Neil. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. Well, it's great to have you on. It's a it's a fascinating new type of 
I won't say vacation because I think that there's more serious reasons people are taking your retreats, but but tell me a little bit about your retreats and then tell me how you got into this space. Okay. Yeah, I'm happy to. Um, we run programs um, in Jamaica and the Netherlands. They're, they're fully legal, above board, um, and we do a comprehensive well-being approach using psychedelics as a tool. And um, our programs are 11 weeks long. They start with a four-week digital preparation period where we teach our guests some of the basic well-being practices, including meditation and mindful movement. We encourage some healthy diet changes. And really, we're looking to get the central nervous system in a better state so that people can have a more positive and meaningful experience. And all of our programs are conducted in groups. It's really actually a, a, a critical part of this work. Um, we find that the outcomes mm. are a lot better doing this work together. Um, and then we bring people down to location and our sites are deep in nature. They're, you know, it's a bit of a digital detox, which is also an important part of the program. And then we're doing these practices together. We're doing meditation every day together. We're doing mindful movement. We're doing different breathwork exercises. And we're using Western psychotherapy to inform some of our group modules that we do. Um, and, you know, the highlight, I would say, is the two psilocybin sessions. Those are on day two, day four, again, conducted in a group session. We use uh, with a group of 15 to 20 guests. We have, you know, six to seven facilitators. Our facilitators are world class. Most of them have over a decade of experience. Many of them have two decades of experience. And we really bring together you know, Western neuroscience and psychotherapy with some of the more indigenous tradition that we see in, in some of the communities that have been using this work for millennia, really. And, sure. um, and then now you know, I, let me just introduce, uh, interrupt yeah. you for a second. Uh, I should say that you're in Mexico <laughs> right uh, now. Yes, that's hence right. The noises in the background. Oh, can you it's, hear it's, them? It's, yeah. it's, it's quite a soundscape. It's wonderful. Oh, I um, hope it's not too bad for no, yeah, no, I'm, it's, I'm it's, it's you nature. know what, it's the travel show. Okay, it, it, it takes us to another place. Yeah, <laughs> yeah people are like, are you in a zoo? <laughs> <laughs> I think probably some of our listeners are thinking to themselves at this point, how is this legal? How are you able to do this within the scope of, of the law? Yeah. So from a U.S. perspective, so long as the operations are legal in the country where you're operating, you're in legal, um, you know, you're okay from a legal U.S. perspective. And then in the countries that we operate, we operate in Jamaica and the Netherlands. And basically, a lot of countries, because of the war on drugs, you know, in, in the 70s, signed on to this U.S. or this U.N. resolution to classify a lot of these substances as controlled one. And it's really a shame because it's limited the research. But some countries didn't enact the laws. And so Jamaica is an example of where they signed the treaty, didn't enact the law. So psilocybin huh. and magic mushrooms in Jamaica are completely legal. And this is a really important part of it because, you know, you want the operations to be above ground. You know, so we, you know, the manufacturing of it, the selling of it, um, all that's legal. So we can ensure that we have really good quality materials, right? You don't have the gray area stuff that would happen in the United States. Sure, sure. Now, I, I want our listeners to hear a bit about your background and how you got into this, because yeah. I think that that gives this a little bit more, I hate to say legitimacy, yeah. uh, but but I, so please tell, sure. tell us about your background. Yeah. And I was just to close off on the programming, you know, everybody goes home and then we have a six weeks digital integration course. And that's really important huh. because 
from a neuroscience perspective, you know, you're putting the brain into a more malleable or neuroplastic state. And then we give people the tools and the support and the coaching and, and, and resources to, to make real change. Um, but uh, to your question, you know, I started my career, I joined the service after 9-11. I, I left my undergrad to do that. I went to Iraq once, Afghanistan twice, um, and got out. I went to Columbia University for graduate school, um, was doing a dual MBA, MIA there. And, you know, I was doing well professionally. Um, I was, you know, a, a highly ranked officer in a, in a pretty elite military unit. I was at an Ivy League grad school and I was getting job offers to prestigious companies, but I was, I was not well, I was anxious. Mm. I was isolating. I had tried a lot of Western approaches and they weren't successful. And, um, I was in bad shape and I was fortunate enough to meet a man by the name of Holm Nguyen. Um, he was getting his PhD there and he was leading a course called the mindfulness for business leaders. And I stumbled into that course and, and it was pretty, pretty significant. He took me under his wing and taught me meditation. And that was the first time that I actually had some actual symptom relief. And, um, through that huh, same because network. you had PTSD, is that fair to say? Yeah, well, I had, yes, I would say I had PTSD and I also had a bit of a TBI. I had a, a, a jump out of an airplane where I hit my head pretty hard and these things all kind Ooh. of can work in tandem, you know, the, the stress of the environment and the work. And then you're having, um, you know, a lot of guys are near explosions or around gunfire and it just does not, you know, help the brain um, and the central yeah. nervous system. And so, you know, I, I had an experience with psychedelics um, about 10 years ago and, you know, it put me on this much better path and um, I started taking better care of myself and got quite into meditation, ended up doing a teacher certification in meditation at Jefferson University and I was teaching meditation. And then, you know, I was doing all the as right well things. As working at McKinley and oh, other major firms. Well, this was the next thing. I had been deferring this job offer with McKinsey and Company because I was teaching meditation. And um, huh. I asked them for another deferral. And they said, no, uh, we're not going to be your permanent backup plan, Neil. So come now or, or never. And I ended up going, you know, and I got to co-lead the internal mindfulness program there. And um, I learned a lot. And part of me loved the work. It's very intellectually stimulating. But, you know, the reality is, is that environment wasn't super healthy either. And after quite some time huh. there and then in the private equity world, you know, I, um, I ended up not as well as I had been before. Mm. And partially, I think it was, you know, material things just aren't going to fill you up. And if you're in anxious work environments, that's not helpful either. And, um, you know, I was looking around at a lot of my corporate peers and they had symptoms that are not unsimilar from, from PTSD. Now, they're not as extreme. But there's a right. spectrum, the lack of sleep, the alcoholism, the anxiety, mm. the challenged relationships, the fight or flight central nervous response is the same. And um, a few years ago, I just I said, I let, uh, you know, I'm just going to leave. I'm not I'm not going to do this work anymore. And I got back into meditation and got back into some of this more holistic well-being work. And then that's when I got you know, connected with Amanda Fielding. And I mean, that's a whole nother story, her iconic legacy. Um, and we just started doing these, this work together. And, we, you know, the, the hope was really to bring a new level of professionalism to this work, make it really safe, have really high quality guides, um, and give people access to this work who, who probably wouldn't otherwise do it if they didn't know that there was this high level of professionalism and safety. Sure. Well, and I know there's been a lot of scientific studies recently, 
on the positive effects of psychedelics. Uh, they're using them with a lot of people who are facing the end of their lives yes. to relieve anxiety. And I got to say, when I was in college, <laughs> I did both uh, mushrooms and acid, had some fascinating experiences, did ecstasy, and felt like for the very first time I accepted myself mm. uh, since high school, which had been a rough time for me. And I, I think I sidestepped years of, of psychotherapy uh, because of, of that experience. Yes. But... I would be nervous to do it now mm. because I'm an older human being mm -hmm. and I, I have had heart issues over the years and I would be worried about what an extreme drug experience could do to me physically. Do you require your participants to have a, a physical uh, uh I have, I have a doctor to say that, that they can do this. Yes, yes, we do. We do a very robust, you know, medical screening. And I believe that psychedelics, if used in the right way, can be used for even severe cases of um, psychiatric disorders and TBI. Um, but that requires a bit of a different infrastructure and approach. You know, so our programs sure. are what we would call more for the betterment of the well, and they're not medical, they're non-clinical. And so we screen out severe cases and it's people coming in that we would call you know, healthy normals, just looking to make some positive, positive change. And then, you know, so we would check your medical condition and any contraindications. But the reality is, is, you know, we use psilocybin, the active ingredient in magic mushrooms, and it's extremely safe. It's very, very safe. Um, so as long as you screen out some of the the, the, the serious indications, um, you know, there's there's reason to believe that going to the bar or out to dinner um, with 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 friends potentially poses more risk than a well controlled psilocybin experience in nature. Huh. So it doesn't really affect the heart that much. There are some concerns around the heart, um, you know, but. It's a case by case basis, and you know I'm not a doctor. I don't do those screenings, sure. so you know people should submit their applications and, and and then you know get the get the conclusive answer there. And what do most of your clients want to see change in their lives? I mean, who are some of the people who find you and who do this? And what's the time commitment like beyond the retreat? You were saying that there's time before and time after uh, mm -hmm. to both prepare for the retreat and process it. How much of a commitment is that? Yeah. So I, I would say a lot of our guests are, you know, white collar professionals um, and, you know, experts in their different fields. And I would say we have a few different types of people that come down or, or, or desires. And, and one is we hear a lot of people just say they feel stuck. It's just they, they feel like they're in this habit or these routines and they just want to make change and they haven't been able to make change. And I do think that these programs can really help people just chart a new course, a more positive course, a more connected course in their lives. Um, it can be really helpful in improving relationships with self and others. And, and then we'll have people come down that, that um, have experienced a recent loss. So like, a you know, they were let go from their job or... Um, they had the death of a loved one and, you know, they don't want to like forget about the experience, but they don't want it to weigh them back anymore. They want to pay it the right. reverence it deserves and, and move forward, you know, and that's what we, we should be doing. And so these programs can be really helpful for that. 
Um, and then we have um, quite a few guests that come down that are, I would say, adventurers or spiritual seekers, meditators that just want to become, you know, more connected, more creative. I mean, it just kind of opens the mind up and um, it just creates opportunity to, to make change. Sure. Now, I would think that you've had some issues over the years. I know from just covering guided tours, whenever you bring a group of strangers together, uh, there's always the worry that one of them will be disruptive or just not that pleasant or a problem in some way. Uh How do you deal with those situations? Because I would think those could be exacerbated by drugs. They they happen. um, And, you know, we're humans, right? So it's happening everywhere all the time. And um, I think screening is a big part of it, you know, and so we make sure that everybody's kind of in a good mental headspace and they might have differing opinions, but, you know, they, um, they're, they can listen and try and understand each other. I'll, I'll tell a really quick story if it's okay. Um, Please, yeah. woman and her husband come down from Florida and um, very conservative perspectives politically. They were quite open about them, even in the lead up to the course and, um, Day one on the course, the woman wore a Remember Benghazi shirt, if you remember that. that was this kind of story around Hillary Clinton's oh, yeah. culpability. And, <laughs> and, you know, there's right. differing opinions on the validity of that story. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to, sure. I don't even need to have a perspective on it to tell the story. And um, another woman from the course, I would say, was from the opposite end of the spectrum politically and kind of mindset wise. And, and it was, she was very triggered by it. And it was a little bit of a thing for a moment. And I asked the woman if she could, you know, take the, go back to her room and change her shirt. I'm not placing judgment, but I'm just saying it's not place, not right place, not right time. And so there was a bit of a thing there. And, um, you know, what is the, the story is now is these women stay in touch. They're, they're friends. Now, I don't think that their political views have shifted drastically, but they see the humanity in the other one. And they got past this uh, this this mental state um, that we can all get kind of caught in these loops. And so, yeah, humans will be humans and, and those interactions happen. But like this work, it's a really fascinating way to come at those issues differently. Well, I noticed that some of your facilitators are musicians. Yes. Uh, so when people are doing the psilocybin, is there dancing involved? Is there making music? I mean, what is that yeah. part of the experience like? Yeah, it's it's really beautiful. So we'll have six to seven facilitators. And in each of our teams, we look to have two senior facilitators. And to how many participants? To 15 to 20 guests. So kind of, you know, three to four to one um, ratio. And um, and so we look, we have a, a senior facilitator that has oftentimes a Western psychotherapy background. And we think that lens is really important. And our guests really appreciate that schooling and, and makes them feel safe. And, um, and then we have another senior facilitator that has, you know, at least a decade of experience kind of done more of the ceremonial side of the work, more of the indigenous way. And we really think that there's value in both and we bring them together. And then we fill in the team with other mindfulness practitioners, yoga instructors that also have experience kind of in this, this, this ceremony. Um, and they play music. Um, so it's, it's live and, and you have to see it to believe it. I mean, it's really special. We have a lot of people come down that have done a 
ketamine session in a clinic with a boombox or something. And, um, you know, this is different. This is really, mm. really different. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's, I think it's the, it's a, it's a really special way to do this work. That's different than what you can do in a doctor's office. Right. Sure. Before I let you go, what do you think is the biggest misconception about this work? Um, I think that there's this extreme danger. And for some individuals, a select few, there is some risk. Um, but if you isolate that risk, um, you know, these compounds are very safe, especially if you look at them relative to other drugs or other, you know, even other prescription drugs, you know, so it's, we've got to get past this boogeyman um, idea that, that if you take psychedelics one time, you're going to lose your mind or something. Um, it's just, well, I guess not, people are yeah, they're worried about flashbacks, right? Yeah. How, how often do flashbacks happen? That's, it's I mean, very, I've never had any. But. Right. It's a very, very, very slim portion of the, of the population. So, you know, again, relative to alcohol, there's a really famous drug harm study that was conducted in 2010 with David Nutt from the United Kingdom. And anybody should read that, but it looks at drug harm relative to caffeine and tobacco and psilocybin and psilocybin is at the bottom of the list, literally the last one. Uh. So, you know, it's just, is there risk? Yes. Is it, you know, look at it relative to alcohol or, I mean, dear God, the prescription pain kills, you know, pain pills. It's just, uh, you know, it's not rational kind of the, the current collective mindset. Right. Right. Well, it's absolutely fascinating. Uh, uh, and thank you so much for appearing here on the From Her Travel Show to discuss it. Thank you so much. That's it for this week's show. I hope that the background noises on my last guest weren't too distracting. My apologies if they were, and and do write to me. You know, you can always do so via fromers.com. Just go to the Contact Us page and put, Hey, Pauline, in the uh, subject head, and it will get to me, I promise you. And come to visit us at fromers.com, even if you don't want to chat with me, because there's some really interesting new articles up. Just yesterday, my colleague Jason Cochran put one up about his new visit to Super Mario Brothers World at the Universal Studios theme park, uh, which may sound like a weird item to devote an entire article to, but apparently the design and the technology and just the creativity behind this new quote-unquote world is so noteworthy that he decided to devote an entire article to it. And unfortunately, uh, the good folks at Universal seem to have also come up with some more very ingenious ways of separating visitors from their hard-earned cash with this new world, ones that Jason thinks are going to be very, very hard to resist. So even if you're not you know, a big theme park person, I think you'll find this article pretty, pretty darn fascinating. And I wanted to end this show with an invitation. Next week, I will be at the Denver Travel and Adventure Show. Uh, I'm actually in LA right now uh, recording from my hotel room. So if it sounds different in an audio way, that's why. But next week is the Denver Travel and Adventure Show. I'll be speaking on both Saturday and Sunday. I hope you'll come and hear me. I, I always love meeting listeners to this podcast readers of the Fromer Guidebooks and Fromers.com. Uh, I feel like we're a community. 
And it's always just so much fun to get to hang out with you all in person. So that's it for this week. Thank you so, so much for listening. And to those who are traveling like I am, may I wish you a hearty bon voyage. Change.